You know, shoegaze was weird. Shoegaze had a really strange, romantic, uh, anti-social element to it. You know, you, you really didn't talk about it with people. It wasn't something like punk or, or ska or rude boy where you had these rules and ways of dressing and it was all about bringing people together. Uh, shoegaze was, you know, tens of thousands of kids sitting alone in a bedroom together at the same time you know, listening to and, and getting sad, romantic, you know, teenage longing, you know, swirling around them with this music. But they never had the guts to ask each other out. <laughs> How many sad teenagers were sitting there listening to Sometimes that could have all just been like making out with each other? <laughs> They didn't, you know, they didn't trust the, they didn't trust it. They didn't trust themselves. They were maybe insecure or underconfident. And, you know, they didn't, they didn't, they thought it was gross to go out and, and talk to someone or hit on someone. It was so impure and it just wasn't, you know, a natural way to conduct yourself. And the problem was that the music was more romantic than any romance they could have set out on at age 15. This music was like so achingly, overwhelmingly beautiful to these kids that, you know, there was no way you were ever going to have a relationship that could possibly measure up to it. And so you just kept your head in the clouds. Because it's so easy to slot in to shoegaze, to make your music conform to what shoegaze is about, it's also very difficult to distinguish yourselves as, you know, a leading shoegaze band. My Bloody Valentine is sonically so unique and so remarkable, but then you have Ride, who were, in terms of performance as a live draw, by far the best live band of any of this shoegaze stuff. Ride were fucking incredible live. I saw them twice, and I can say without any qualification, they were the best live band going in the early 90s. Thing that's so unfortunate about it is that their music wasn't you know of this kind of confrontational driving masculine ilk so a lot of people really missed out and missed how technically tight and true to the records that band was in concert a lot of people like to talk about how dinosaur jr was an influence on my bloody valentine and on shoegaze generally and dinosaur jr was also extremely powerful live but they were a kind of you know rock band in a very classic sense they covered peter frampton there was a lot of the summer of love kind of thing with ride there was a lot of blissy reverb jangle without being precious and twee about it and that's one of the places the shoegaze really starts in the uk they have a long history of using this word anorak to describe um what in america we would latterly have called twee 
when punk dies out, I had said in this other video that goth is sort of where all the anger and frustration goes. But there's also a huge sense of liberation because punk points up how you can make your own records and shows everyone that there's a big enough network of pure pop fans who want to enjoy pop music that they're sharing with each other outside of the you know huge industrial machine that's traditionally been giving pop music on its terms to the listeners. Now the listeners can make their own bands, press their own singles, do a few tours, you know, hire out a room and make their own scene. And that's what Alan McGee and Jeff Travis and all of these, you know, scions like Tony Wilson all did. They all started labels. Now if you want to read about that, you need to get Richard King's How Soon Is Now and you really should get My Magpie Eyes Are Hungry For The Prize, an encyclopedic history of creation records. Shoegaze is kind of the culmination of this whole thing. So you've had these bands like Young Marble Giants and the Marine Girls and Tallulah Gosh. You've had all of these jangly, upbeat, happy bands that are celebrating the idea that they can have their own scene and their own music outside of, you know, top of the pops. And they can have their own fun and it can be unspoiled. Prior to the Jesus and Mary chain, you don't really have any kind of breakthrough band to point at and say, well, all this DIY stuff we were doing it can go somewhere. With the Jesus and Mary chain, Alan McGee figured out the importance of PR, no matter what. You have got to get people aware of your music if you want there to be more than, you know, playing a local hall free trade union every other weekend. You have really got to get the industry convinced that there's something going on that they need to come check out. And so at that time, the big thing is, you know, pass your bands up and on. And Alan made an absolute shit ton of money doing that by punting on the Jesus and Mary chain, not on his terms, and then the House of Love, which is the greatest coup in the history of independent music. Don't talk to me about how the Sex Pistols made cash from chaos. When I started the group, which was at the beginning of 1986, it was because I saw the Mary chain and I saw the Valentines and they were so much of a kick in the face for everything else that was going around. You know, to me, groups like the Weather Prophets and Primal Scream and the Pastels and all that stuff at that time was just like twee and rubbish, you know. It had nothing to do with rock and roll. It was like, it was a con. It was just a con. The House of Love's deal in 1988 is bar none the most absurd thing any record label has ever done. There was literally nothing about that band that warranted the level of investment that they received as a result of Alan McGee just absolutely blagging. He just was talking shit. The House of Love hadn't proven anything. It was just, you know, well, Guy Chadwick is a sexy bastard. You know, I, I don't understand how that happened. It's absolutely fucking mental. They had one half-assed single.
you know, while this is all going on in the late 80s and DIY has kind of risen up to the point where it's really at its peak in terms of mainstream press attention and them also still controlling distribution, there's one band throughout this entire decade that has been putting out records consistently year over year and doing side projects. One of the most prolific artists of the 1980s, Cocteau Twins. Now, Robin Guthrie, over the course of their early records, has eschewed this kind of, you know, harsh, grating Susie and the Banshees, John McGeeh squeal that he had on his guitar. And he started refining this kind of Danielle Lenoir, Brian Eno um, delay flicker. And he develops this incredibly unique, rich, romantic kind of guitar sound. Some people were, you know, derisively putting them close to new age. They answered all comers with their major label uh, debut, Bluebell Null. They had had some kind of very gothic sounding pop earlier with Love's Easy Tears, Orange Appled, and some of the EPs that were sprinkling around Treasure, which to that point was their signature album. Um, Treasure remains a celebrated record in the whole history of this thing, mostly for the song Lorelei, which was one of the most predictive um, pieces of pop going in 1984 with respect to how this romantic DIY music was likely to evolve. They were so unique that they were off-putting. Elizabeth Fraser's voice is just, it's almost holy, it's, it's insane. It's not, you know, the fact that she wasn't even singing words, she was just singing syllables. It's very difficult to get your head around that. And it's very difficult to cross the threshold of really embracing and giving yourself over to that music. Um, but in time, so many people have. Because, you know, we've seen such extreme and strange things happen in pop music that the idea of a siren just warbling, you know, syllables into the air and creating this incredible swirl of melody and, and ecstasy is, you know, something everybody's up for. It's really wonderful for me to think that, you know, almost every teenage kid who's interested in the history of independent and alternative music is probably at some point going to be told, you need to hear Heaven or Las Vegas. Vegas by the Cocteau Twins. Between that and Loveless, you have, they're released essentially in the same year. You have two of the best records, um, you know.
both absolutely unique they're both very well attended each song is very clearly thought out and given its due um, there's no padding there's no filler on either of those records they were the crowning achievement of the shoegaze sound now if you want to get reductive about it you can sort of say well you know shoegaze is kind of like cocktail twins and jesus and mary chain it's all somewhere in there those are the two pillars that are you know represent the the very generalized history of what ends up exploding after the kind of you know jangly c86 stuff that's going on in the mid 80s when you have primal scream and you know the bluebells and 150,000 um anorak jangle bands that are all kind of just enjoying each other's company let's say there's not a lot of really serious devastating songwriting to be found there and so the whole thing has a very light social feel to it. When My Bloody Valentine stops making this really corny, you know, jangle stuff like Sunny Sunday Smile and this stuff that you can hear on a compilation CD called Ecstasy and Wine. You know, at some point, Kevin Shields decides he's got to go his own way. When they came back around with the material that eventually forms these two landmark 12 inches, You Made Me Realize and Feed Me With Your Kiss, as well as the album Isn't Anything, Alan McGee is just blown away. Alan McGee famously said he thought they were the English Husker Du because he had seen them when they were a jangle band and he thought they were total shit. But then... There's stories that have been told about how when he was a kid he used to, you know, hum with his sister and, and break the tone so that the waves would start to, you know, fight with each other and you'd get these heterodynes, they call them, where, you know, if I'm, if I'm humming in A and then all of a sudden you start to raise it up or lower it down, you know, there's this wave collision that happens based on the, the height of the wave and how it hits your ear. And he, he's told the story that he used to sit in the kitchen and do that with his sister. And he said he used to love that sensation of, of hearing and feeling, you know, the dissonance that would occur. Well, what he did was he figured out a way to emulate that sound on a guitar. So he tunes the strings together on his guitar. He's able to create such a hurricane of melody and noise and waveform dissonance just with one guitar by using these kind of delays and gate effects. The signature sound of Isn't Anything, he happened upon that in the studio. The Elisis MIDI Verb 2 um, was heavily promoted as having a unique set of patches, which is in the four range using this effect called bloom 
Now, if you get a MIDI Verb 2 and you put it on, you know, patch 47, 48, or 49, you'll hear immediately the foundation of Isn't Anything. The signal on Isn't Anything from his guitar through the MIDI Verb to the tape was 100% wet. You would never in a million years have thought of using a 100% wet signal from a piece of crap effects unit. It causes way too much overhead collapse. It, it reduces the entire signal to like 16-bit sound. It's just very funny when you hear it and you realize this is the skeleton key for what he had going on. Now, he did a lot more with it than, you know, just turn it on. I'm not trying to minimize the incredible sonic palette of Isn't Anything. But when you listen to Isn't Anything and then you listen to Loveless, you hear the maturation of someone's idea. And the idea he starts out with on Isn't Anything, if you take a look at No More Sorry, and All I Need. Those two songs are the template for the storm that's coming. 